This is Juanita Santana, a former Border Patrol agent, uh, class 224-88 of 88. And this is the All Patrol Headquarters podcast. This is the best job we ever had. Greetings and welcome to episode 6 of the Old Patrol podcast. I'm your host, Gil Mazza. This podcast is dedicated to celebrating and preserving the history, heritage, and legacy of the Old Patrol through the words of those who lived it, with a few shenanigans along the way. Today, we will be talking with retired Old Patrol agent Juanita Santana, who graduated in class 224 on 8888 in Glencoe, Georgia. She's a recipient of the Newton Azraq Award and the first female Border Patrol agent to receive the Purple Cross. For what, you ask? Well, come and hear it for yourself. Ain't no patrol like the old patrol. Honor first, honor always. Good morning, uh, Miss Santana, and welcome to the Old Patrol HQ podcast. Good morning, Gil. How are you today, sir? I am doing very well, ma'am. Thank you very much. So I would uh, love to start out uh, by talking about um, how you got started in the Border Patrol and what inter- interested you um, initially. I was a clerk for the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms and I saw the opening for the Border Patrol. I also used to listen to the agents return from the field with war stories and I said, I want to do that. So when I saw the opening and uh, I was living in Puerto Rico and working in the metropolitan area, the Border Patrol station in Aguadilla had just opened. So I said, I'm going to do that. And it took about a a good year before the process went through, Mm -hmm. before the background investigation was done and I was finally hired and sent off to the academy. So I started uh, in Tucson, Arizona was my original duty station, which at the time was a small station. Uh, and where did you go to the academy at? Oh, I was one of the lucky ones. I went to Glinko, good old Fletzy. Yes, to Glinko, Georgia. That's where my academy took place. Wonderful. Yeah, that's what that's where I went too. And uh, I'm I'm really glad that I had an opportunity. I was one of the the last few classes I think that were able to go to Glinko. That's where the best job we ever had got started. That's for <laughs> sure. That was the place. <laughs> Amen to that. Amen to that. And so. How did you uh, find the academy? What was it like for you to get through the academy? It was rather challenging. My class started with 57 uh, trainees, and there were only three female agents in there. So um, uh, Sarah Batista, who was a classmate of mine, that she came from Texas, Mm -hmm. and Sarah helped me with the run because it's, Georgia is hot, it's humid, mm-hmm. it was muggy, and PT was very intense, and uh, we we had very good PT instructors, but it was very intense, and of course, you know, the firearms and the driving, it was such a, a diverse uh, curriculum that we had to work with, you know, yes. and, and it was, you know, it was quite a, I think at the time it was the longest academy at Glinko. Uh, way back then, which IEO did 8-8 of 88, and Border Patrol held the longest academy at the time. Besides all the other federal law enforcement agencies, Border Patrol held the longest one. So it was quite challenging, and we went in in August, so we had the good, rainy, hot, muggy days, and we graduated mid-December. And then we went up to the field. 
Did, did you ever find yourself covered in sand fleas while you were doing your homework at night? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, how about those nights while we were standing uh, for for attention Sunday Monday mornings yeah, for the formation? Yeah, for yes, the formation. Yes, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. Wouldn't trade it for the world, though. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So once you graduated, you said that you had... Um, uh, reported to the Tucson to the uh, Tucson station in uh, the Tucson sector. Yes, that's correct. So our class went to different stations mm -hmm. throughout Tucson sector, and eleven of us were lucky enough that we got assigned to Tucson, which at the time was a very small station, and uh, we were still located on you know West Ajo Way in an old building, uh, very small, but there was so much to do. And we were lucky that our journeymen were really seasoned agents and they shared all their knowledge and their experiences with us. And there was also only a handful of female PAs at the time at that station. I would dare guess less than five, you know. Yes. And, uh, yeah, my, our first night from, after going to post-academy training, which then was held differently, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we went out to the field and the very first night on the job, we went out with a supervisor and we had the opportunity to participate in a large drug seizure. So it's the first night on the job and we get 3,000 pounds of marijuana. So imagine me? that, right? <laughs> in, the, in the canyon south of Arribaca. So after that, that's all we wanted to go back to. It's, hey, when are we going back to the mountains? When are we going back to the canyons? Because we were hooked, right? Wow. Uh, yeah, it was very diverse, the type of work we did there, from traffic observations to city patrol, um, train check, uh, and we also covered a large Indian reservation. So a lot of tracking, a lot of uh, tracking large groups, and a lot of um, ambushing, you know, backpackers and trains of horses with drugs. We, we did a lot of that, and like I said, it was small at the time. You yes, know, yes. 40 to 60 agents, which now the stations are so large. Did all your uh, female classmates graduate with you? Um, only, uh, I think we were, there were three of us and only two of us graduated. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, how did the management there and the a agents receive you when you first came in there? They were fair with us they were very challenging of course because of the terrain that we covered mm -hmm. and uh and and they they got us ready real quick we, there was no time wasted mm -hmm, obviously. Uh, because we needed to be independent and we needed to be out there because there were only so many of us and before long we were working by ourselves and i think they were pretty fair they were tough uh it was rather challenging but at the same time i think they were fair because they were preparing us to be their partners and to work with them, you know, yes. and, uh, and and to do the same things they did. Do you remember, uh, um, I'm sure you do, uh, who your journeymen were? Some of them? Uh, yes, of course. I remember uh, Felix Banks, and he has since deceased, and he was board tech, so imagine the hikes that he put me through, oh, yeah. right? <laughs> and... Uh, and uh, Smiley Robbins, he passed away recently, uh -huh. and he was a great tracker. 
So if you wanted to learn how to track, you went with Smiley Robinson to the Indian Reservation. And with him, you only listen to two kinds of music, country or western. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he was amazing. He was so calm, you know, so, so calm. And uh, I had John Stevenson uh, train me as well. And he also, he was a great writer. So he was one of those guys that, you know, taught me the writing skills that I needed to do the job to get those I-44s done. And, uh, but, you know, you need to know that we had agents that had just recently passed their 10th in turn training us. Oh. So that was quite interesting, yes. yes. <laughs> they were still learning the area themselves. But uh, of the season ones, I'm telling you, Felix Banks, John Stevenson, uh, they were really good, you know. Yes. And uh, my supervisors were Carl McLafferty and uh, Ron Laughlin, who passed away, John Franz, uh, Clyde Bensenhofer. Clyde was a great soup. Uh, always, they always took care of us, you know. Yes. Uh, and, and they helped us through it all, that's for sure. So at the academy, you know, we're always taught, you know, don't don't mess with the with the Indians, right? Don't f with the Indians. And so, did you find that to be the case out there working the reservations? Oh, that was an experience on its own. You could write a book just to work <laughs> working on the reservation. Um, and you know, we worked with the Tohono O'odham Nation. They used to be called the Papagos. Yes. And they were really mellow and easygoing people until, of course, they consumed alcohol. But we, we would get in all kind of um, high-speed chases and tracking incidents. And, uh, and it was interesting. We would go and do our job, and they did their thing, you know. But oftentimes, we encountered them trafficking because mm -hmm. it's, an in, it, it's open land, you know, and it's so vast and so remote and so many different routes and avenues to travel through. But it, it was quite challenging, that's for sure. Yes, and um, how how was the management in terms of you know uh, uh, you know uh, how they handled the troops, letting you work, being out there in the field? They wanted us to work, uh -huh. and our station was really productive because we covered the canyons, we covered the Indian reservation, and we covered remote areas. You know, and uh, they they were very supportive. Um, and oftentimes we, we got in any kind of trouble or high-speed chases or incidents in the field. They would help us type the memo to tell you the truth. Whenever there was an incident, they were right there next to us. You know, tell me what happened. Uh -huh. And the thing is, you know, in the patrol, in the old patrol, is don't lie. Tell it like it is. Yeah. You're going to get in so much more trouble if you lie about the incident. Just be honest. You know, what did you do? What happened? Because the truth is going to take you far. But if you lie, that's, you might as well quit right there and then. You know, but it was just, they, they demanded integrity and righteously so. We gave it to them. You know, we were always honest and, uh, and uh, forthcoming and truthful with them. Yeah, and if you were and you were doing your job, they, they, they took care of you. Yeah, exactly. If, you, if you're out there doing your job, you're going to get into things anyhow, right? Yes. <laughs> you're going to yes. get in trouble if you're doing your job. Absolutely. I, yeah, definitely. And so a, a lot of times when we leave the academy, we get to our duty stations, you know, we go through our FTO training or we ride with our journeyman, you know. Uh, I always thought that um, that layer of journeyman between the uh, troops and management was the one that kept... The tradition alive, the the history alive, you know, the, the all the bad habits alive, right? They uh they would pass down to us 
you know, this is how you do it. This is how you get on the field. This is how you track. This is how you lay in for a group, all those things. And um, what was it that you enjoyed doing most? In other words, some people will, will, will gravitate to sign cuts. Some people will gravitate to the vehicle stops or intel. What was it you enjoyed most doing about it out there in the field? You know, it's interesting because I early on, I would work uh, in an undercover capacity with ASU, with the anti-smuggling unit. Uh -huh. and, uh, and then I went to the DEA group also for a while. And I always liked the city and I liked the highway. Uh, I could track just like anyone else, right? But I really enjoyed the highway and the city because I knew how it operated and how the, the scumbags, the bad guys would work. So that, that's what I liked. I really liked the highway and I liked being in town because Tucson was prolific. Uh -huh. All you needed to do was stop in a circle bay and you would see a drug deal going on. <laughs> and we're not talking ounces, we're talking, you know, hundreds of pounds right in front of your eyes. And I used to have like an uncanny ability to get into, you know, interdict drug loads and money seizures in town, in the city, you know, or in the highway. And that's what I like doing. Uh, it, it, you know, to me that that brought great satisfaction, for sure. Wow, wow, that's that's good. Uh, now, um, did you ever? Uh, I know we we are going to talk about um, that incident in 1995, but I want to set put that aside for you know to talk specifically about. But uh, what kind of stuff did you get into during you know in your interdiction stops in the city or in the highway? Uh, a lot of money, a lot of drugs, uh, a lot of marijuana. Uh, there were, you know, times of the year that they harvest. And according to the rains in Mexico, that's how much drug, anything we stopped had a load, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Regardless of the vehicle, if it was new, if it was old. And, but it was, it was just happening. It was a place that was hopping. There was so much action. And uh, I always encountered a lot of money, um, cash, uh, currency was a seizure I always did, and drugs, and vehicles, stolen vehicles, and weapons. It appears as if, if you had drugs, if you had money, you were going to have guns mm -hmm. uh, involved, you know. And of course, it was all about, about the movement, you know, of the product, right? Yeah. And the bulk quantities, but always guns and drugs and money. And uh, a lot of uh, alien smuggling loads, of course, you know, coming up from the border in all kinds of vehicles, you know, from from vans to sedans to SUVs. That was the type of work that we encountered. Yes. Um, that, you know, it's so funny. You remind me of, um, uh, after a while, when, we, when I first got in, um, my journeyman would actually drive in the cities, you know, in El Cajon and Santee in those areas looking for people, you know, looking for uh, legals on the uh, on the corners at the at the Home Depots, you know, even driving around. And some of them wouldn't even go out to the field till they caught somebody in the city. And after a while, they wouldn't uh, they said, oh, you know, I don't, we don't want you doing that. Just drive straight out to the field. Don't look right or left. Get out in the field and, and catch him out there. And I went to Douglas. I went to Douglas, Arizona, for a, for a detail, and I was never never forgot this about the Arizona, you know, about the uh, uh, you know sector down there. And uh, I was driving around with one of the guys and uh, that one of the agents in Douglas, and he said, and I went into a, a a Circle K to get some stuff for the night, you know, for the shift. And I saw I, I saw people that I recognized as illegal. So I walked out to the truck and I said, hey, you know, he goes, uh, how, you know, how'd it go? And I go, well, I said, well, there's, there's some illegals in there. And he goes, what the heck are you doing? He said, go out and get them. I said, 
Oh, you can do that here? Yes. <laughs> uh, so you guys that seem to always have been uh, a little more free to just go out and do your job and wherever you, you know, wherever it led you. Yes, absolutely, definitely. So I want to get into, uh, you know, to talk about some of your experiences and, uh, and, and then get into the, that situation that you're probably most well known for. You know, uh, you uh, you know that, that eventually you actually received the Newton Azraq Award, and uh, also the um, the you were the first female in the Border Patrol to ever receive the Purple Cross. So, um, yes. before we get to that incident, are there other experiences you want to share with us, as far as uh, you know, some some interesting war stories or something funny that you experienced out in the field there in uh, in Tucson? Funny, I think we had something funny every single day. That's yeah, for sure. Right. And uh, I used to keep journals because every night was a different night, you know, and uh, you, you just didn't know what you were going to experience, right? Yes. And after a little while, I quit wearing a watch because it just didn't matter where, where we were, what time it was. I knew something was going to happen, you know, so I quit wearing a watch. I was no longer concerned over time. Mm-hmm. And I, I, it was different. My, my perspective was different, but I quit wearing a watch. It's like, you know what, we used to wear those tiny little Timex because yeah. they had a green band to them, so it matched the uniform, mm-hmm. right? And uh, so I, I quit wearing my Timex, I just simply quit, but I always had, hidden underneath my lapel, I had a pin of an angel. I actually had two of them underneath me. You know, you couldn't wear anything, you couldn't disclose anything, so I had that, you know, and then years late, later on, I would carry a St. Michael everywhere I went. And to this day, I carry a St. Michael because someone has to watch over us, right? Yes. And we're, we're living these experiences, but we need to know and we have to be certain that God is giving us these experiences and that he, you're getting into it and he's going to get you out of it, you know, yeah. for sure that he's going to be watching over you. You know, one of the things I did that I liked most uh, was when I worked uh, undercover work with ASU. Uh, we had an ASU unit in Sierra Vista and another one in Tucson. And there was um, there was an ASU agent who, by the way, she was the first Border Patrol female to be promoted to supervisor in San Diego. Her name is Carol Ferry, and oh. she has since passed away, yes, of course. Yes, I've seen her famous and, picture on the horse, right? And, uh, yes, yes, exactly, exactly. So she was my mentor when it came to ASU things. So because I was a GS9, if you remember the NFLs, I was an NFL. Yes. Uh, so they would come. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Ninth for life. Uh, they would come over to the station and they would ask for people to see if you wanted to go undercover with them and pose as a driver or as a smuggled alien. And oftentimes I would say, yes, I will go. But of course, you know, we were limited, let's say, 90 days or 180 days or 60 days. We couldn't stay with them long. So we were quickly introduced by informants to the leaders of the smuggling groups. And then you would be driving. But one of the stories that I can tell you that was one of the hairiest stories I lived through was um, I was smuggled through Douglas, Arizona. And um, they put a whole bunch of us in the back of a pickup truck with a camper shell. And it was Mother's Day weekend, and the driver takes off like at 100 miles an hour because their intent was to 
separate themselves from the border as quickly as possible, mm -hmm. right? Yes. And taking back roads and dirt roads. And I was back there with a whole bunch of OTMs. And we had a couple of enforcers with us. And if you just barely lifted your head, they would just slap you or kick you around. Wow. And uh, I kept on thinking, oh my God, I don't want this vehicle to roll over. If something happens to me, my mom is going to kill me. Because it was Mother's Day weekend, you know? Yes. And uh, we, we get to the stash house eventually in Phoenix. And it's two bedrooms with just a few mattresses strewn about the floor. And there's about 70 or 80 illegal aliens in there from all countries. And, you know, by then, some of them have walked through the desert. Some of them have been piled up in vehicles like I was with a whole bunch of OTMs. And I never posed as a Mexican because I'm Puerto Rican and my accent is so strong. They would immediately know I was not Mexican. Mm -hmm. But it was a lot easier for me to claim, claim to be from any other country other than Mexico, right? Yeah. But... um. After like two days in the stash house, you know, and you're just observing what they're doing, who's running with the money, who's buying the plane tickets. At the time, people could fly out without an ID. You know, security at the airports was lax. Yeah. You know, we're talking desired the 90s. So it was a lot easier for them to buy 10 tickets and send them to Minneapolis, Minnesota. So when Bortak finally hit the house and they start taking us out, I go by... Uh, my partner, and he says, hey, Juani, you stink. <laughs> and I'm thinking, no kidding. I've been in this stash house for two days now, and these people haven't showered in a month, and your clothing becomes just smelly, just like they are, you know. You become one of them, but let me tell you, you know how we fingerprint them? These people, they leave a fingerprint on you. Uh, in turn... You know, they mark us for life. It's something that you never lose, especially when you go through the opportunity of being smuggled and going through their fears and their doubts and, and the abuse from the smugglers and the enforcers. That is something that, that you can, that is, that is yours to take and yours to make the most of, you know, and to continue doing cases afterwards and being able to get admissions during interviews and breaking cases because you took that with you. That's something that nobody takes, but they do affect you. They, they impress you, you know, uh, especially when you work undercover. Uh, my last undercover stint was in Miami. And uh, these guys, this was maritime alien smuggling, so it's very different. A lot of death cases yeah. with the boats flipping over. And I was introduced to... Uh, to an alien smuggling, you know, cell, maritime alien smuggling cell, by an informant that we had that was pretty savvy. And uh, he was a career criminal, evidently. And uh, before long, we were meeting people left and right. And everybody wanted something, you know. But the way we got to them was by seizing one of their boats so that they, they would need to reach out to me you know, posing as someone who had contacts in immigration to get their boats back. So I was then introduced by a career to a career criminal by the name of Angel Garcia. And Angel was just bad news. His mind was constantly plotting and coming up with conspiracies and ideas to violate the law. Mm -hmm. I spent 11 months with him before we finally went up to the U.S. attorney and said, hey, do you think we can round these guys up? We have more than enough 
you know, yeah. and we had 11 umbrella cases, 11 different conspiracies, oh. uh, where we rounded a whole bunch of people up, but he was quite challenging. He was, he was, he was amazing. He had links with public corruption. And, uh, and like I said, he was a career criminal. This guy would burn my phone coming up with different plans and plots. 180 different ideas every week on things to do. You know yeah, what I mean? Yes, um, yes. Yeah. So I was very relieved when he finally, we finally arrested him. And he kept on telling the agents, I need to talk to your female agent. And they were telling him, no, we don't have a female agency. And you do, you have to. I need to talk to her. I'm not going to talk to anybody unless you let me talk to her. So my partner calls me and says, hey, Angel wants to talk to you. And I said, sure, put him on the phone. You know, and he says, hey, I am so sorry, mommy. He used to call me mommy. <laughs> mommy, I'm so sorry. But I know you were just doing your job. No hard feelings, mommy. No hard feelings. Really? Yes, yes, yes. I was like, my partner was like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But he was he was a young one and uh, and he that was going to be his life he had been in the system since he was like 14 years old oh wow. you know yeah. yeah so that was the life that he knew and i forget what he got sentenced to but we even provided him with a fraudulent birth certificate because he was not a citizen they brought him in illegally as a child and he never got status so he paid us $15,000 to produce uh, a NAT uh, certificate for him, well, you know? Yes. But he, that was his thinking, constantly violating the law, constantly, for sure. Well, you have, I mean, opened up a whole new can of questions I have now for you because, um, you know, before I talked to Hippolito Acosta, I don't know if you ever heard of him, but he fa famously undercover agent. And then now you, even in the Border Patrol, I didn't know that we were doing that, that we were allowing agents to get smuggled from one place to another to take down to take down groups. Before that, I thought it was only Charles Bronson when he was uh, sexual chief at Chula Vista that was the only one that ever got himself smuggled into the United States, you know? But, yes. uh, but tell me, um, how did you initiate the contact there for that, uh, for when you got smuggled from Tucson, I mean, from Douglas to Tucson, or on Phoenix, I'm sorry, how did you get, how did you initiate that contact? Well, the, the special agents, right, remember, I was still uh, an 1896 uniform agent, yes. and they would just take me for, let's say, 90 days to do a case. They already had informants in place that had infiltrated the organizations. And the informants in turn would introduce us uh, as a driver or as someone with contacts. And it was, for, you know, from then on, we had to run with it. Yeah. Uh, we had a really good case in the late 90s with, uh, with a female uh, informant in Douglas. And she was amazing. But this organization was hard to break in because they only trusted family members. Mm. You had to be a Blanco. It was Herman Blanco, and he ran an incredible enterprise. And these people were prolific. When they sent loads, they sent 8, 10, 12 cars at a time. And finally, we got tired, and we, we made a decision of, let's have the Border Patrol take all these cars down, and then they would have no choice but hire us, because they didn't want to hire us because they only trusted family. Mm -hmm. So that's how we ended up finally driving for them. Uh, from Douglas to uh, to Phoenix, and then um, 
I introduced another undercover agent and he drove for them from Phoenix to Minneapolis, Minnesota. But it took building trust and it took, you know, you always, you had to do it with an informant, right? Yes. Uh, because you just don't simply break a case like that. But, uh, and sometimes we would go to Mexico for meetings, which nowadays that takes a lot of paperwork and an act of Congress, literally. Yes. And you cannot smuggle large groups of people. Now you have to have seat belts guaranteed for all them. All these safety measures that in the past, you know, and we, yeah. didn't, we didn't have wires. We didn't have, you know, communications. We just were brave and we took the challenge and okay, we'll see you guys in Phoenix. Or we'll see you at the hotel after we drop these aliens off. We just went on our own with very little surveillance because at the time, ASU agents were limited. There were only a handful, you know, five or six per unit. So, you know, it, it, we took a lot of chances uh, and there were a lot of challenges, but we were, we were risk takers. Mm -hmm. We did without hesitation. You know, it was a different world that you got in, involved with, you know. But it was quite a great adventure, I assure you, quite a great adventure. It sounds like, it. Be, besides having, you know, nerves of steel, it sounds to me like you wanted to do work like this, even from the beginning. You're talking about how you were, um, you, you enjoyed more the city, the highway interdiction part of it, and the undercover part. It looks like you wanted to do work like this. Oh, yes. Early on, I worked with, uh, with the DEA border uh, group. And uh, I was introduced by an informant to purchase black tar heroin. And right before I go out to the street, I go to an DA agent and I said, Hey, David, can you help me? I have no clue what black tar heroin looks like. <laughs> you know, I'll come over here. I'll show you a sample. So he, he takes me, you know, to the seizure locker, right? And he shows me and he says, it's going to smell like vinegar or it's gonna smell like baby urine. You know you're gonna have the right thing if it smells like this, you know? Okay. But that was a really, really interesting point because, you know, I didn't use heroin. I didn't look like a heroin user. So to me, it was like, okay, so we're gonna get this small amount and I have a boyfriend coming down from Phoenix. He's interested in buying pounds, you know? And mm -hmm. of course, by then, the people that we were dealing with, they were from Sinaloa, Mexico. They were like, oh, more money. Good. Yeah, sure. We'll sell you more, you know, but and that was another family group. They did a lot of what they called work as families. They didn't trust a lot of outsiders, evidently, because when they did, they got arrested, right? Yes. Yeah. So it was it was sheer luck to be able to gain their trust and then progress and, and to be able to, you know, effectively arrest them eventually. Now, you had said earlier that you were volunteering for all this work and you weren't wearing a watch. You know, the only people that don't wear a watch are single people. <laughs> so I'm assuming you were single this whole time while you were working this stuff? Uh, say again. You were, sorry. You were, you, you were single, you know, no, no family, kids, things like that? No, none. Okay, so you were just out there, just just the living the vida loca out here in the... You know, taking down smugglers and working undercover. Yes. Um, yeah, that's what we signed for. Remember? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Now, um, 
you know, when uh, I interviewed Hippolito Acosta about his uh, smuggling case, he got smuggled from Juarez to Chicago, ended up uh, finagling his way into driving even eventually before he took him down. He said when he walked away from that situation, his drive, his number one commitment was to really go after and prosecute the people that were putting the people in danger. And uh, how did, in what ways did getting smuggled, you had mentioned a little bit earlier, right, how you take that away from you. So now it's, that's an imprint in you that you never forget. What, in what ways did that change you um, and your perspective towards the job? Oh, yes, absolutely. It changes you because now you have a different bag of tricks. Now you know what to ask. And uh, when you get groups in a cell, you show up and there's a group or you arrest a group, you already know who to look for and you know how to separate them. This guy is nicely dressed. He's got the expensive Nikes on. This is the guide. Mm. Uh, this is the enforcer. You know, oh, no, no, this guy, this is not his first time. You know, this guy is going to take them all the way to Minneapolis, you know. He's just taking care of the group. And uh, you just know what questions to ask and how to how to break the cases and how to get disclosures and, and how to make it happen, how to make them solid for prosecution. It changes you. It changes you tremendously even when you are on your off-duty days and you see something at the grocery store or somewhere, you pay attention and you're like, is this person getting trafficked? Is this person mm -hmm. getting smuggled? Um, it totally completely widens your horizons and you learn so much more about the job. Yeah, so it sounds to me, it sounds to me like um, for you, every, every um, incident, every arrest, every situation you were in, it was always a learning experience for you to get to, to get better at your job. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's Plan for the next one, that's for sure. Yes. Now, you know, a lot of times uh, female PAs do not like to get differentiated, right? We're all agents. We're all green. But um, I know that many times a lot of the, the females in the patrol, even today, uh, experience uh, obstacles, right? Obstacles in the workplace, obstacles out in the field, even obstacles uniform-wise, and uh, a lot of things that aren't made just for them, you know, for them to be able to use. Uh, it w was there any time when being a female PA uh, affected your job uh, situation whatsoever? You know that uh, I knew that I, just based on the training that I received at the academy and having a class with just three female agents, I knew that I had to be mentally tough. I had I had to have the mental toughness, and and I had to have you know this spirit that I was not going to quit. You know, it didn't matter what they presented me, right? Mm -hmm. And also, um, like my commands were much more clear when I dealt with people. And I had a journeyman, Dave Lewis, who said, "Come over here, kid. I'm going to teach you how to really search someone." Forget all that stuff they taught you at the academy. Come here. <laughs> and uh, we had just arrested someone like in the train yards. And he puts the guy against the car and he says, no, you're going to do it like this. And you know what? Ever since, that's exactly how I searched someone. Mm -hmm. And he taught me how. And he taught me why he did it that way. And he had been an old sheriff deputy. So they learned different things, right, with their years. And, and this guy was, you know, much, much older than what I was. But when he says, this is how you're going to search a guy and have no doubt touching here, grabbing here, you know, yeah. and his technique worked, you know, Carl McCafferty told me, this is how you push them against the vehicle. So you keep them off balance, 
you know, uh, handle those hips so their center of gravity is thrown off and they cannot do anything to you. So you start acquiring these hints and, uh, and you just get mentally tough and you get ready to go and do the job, you know, uh, how to cuff them so it works for you. And, uh, you know, I'm not too tall. I'm not too big. I'm like 5'7". Mm-hmm. And uh, we're going to leave my weight out of here, okay? <laughs> I was muy, muy flaca when I started. But, you know, with the years, we put on some weight. But uh, but I'm only 5'7". And I was arresting all kinds of people, right? And, and you think all Mexicans and Guatemalans and El Salas are short. Well, not always. And... Remember, I liked the highway, so I encountered a lot of citizens, a lot of resident aliens, and you encounter people in all sizes. So that's what I'm telling you. My handcuffing techniques had to be really good, and uh, searching people, you know, finding stuff that they concealed in their private parts. That was part of the job, you know, and commands. My commands were very firm and, uh, and to the point, you know. Uh, stop or I'm going to kill you and I intended to kill them yeah that was it you know I was not going to stop you know but we had so many close encounters and so many high-speed chases and bailouts and foot chases and years down the road I learned from Felix Chavez only chase them to the fence if you can get them within 10 yards let them go and I'm like really sir he says, yeah. yeah, you have to be real quick on your feet. I'm like, yeah. okay, you know. But it's interesting because you train and you try to stay in shape. And, you know, as the years are going by, you're picking up more things from other agents, from your journeyman, from your supervisors, you know. Yeah. And, and all the training, you know, the consistent training. But you have to be mentally tough to do the job, you know, as a female agent. And But we also bring other things into the formula how perceptive we are, how Mm -hmm. uh, observant we are, the things that we pick on, you know, that sometimes male agents don't pick on, you know, especially, you know, in the, in the smuggling groups, when you have a load, you know, a mixed load and, uh, and and the things that you read, you know, between the lines that, that it's, it's just an asset that we bring to the job for sure. This concludes part one of our interview with the unstoppable Juanita Santana. Part two gets into the incident in 1995 that made her a Border Patrol hero and a legend. You don't want to miss it. So, what are you waiting for? Go and listen to part two. (laughs) Ain't no patrol like the old patrol. Honor first, honor always.